Good evening. Just checking my Fitbit. I got 9,317 steps today, but I have no um, heartbeat. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's interesting. So, um, looks like everybody's here. Finished your first full day of this retreat. Um, I'm guessing... Uh, There are a lot of experiences that have been had today by folks. Um, Ones of like, wow, this is the most amazing thing ever, and the other being like, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) So I just want to sing you a little song about the latter. (laughs) As I sit right here, I wonder, what do I fear about this retreating gear right now? And as I calm my heart, I trust that, whoops, sorry, I trust that I am a part of this world, and waking up is hard. I'm sitting through my pain, seeking truth from the inane, finding trust in little old me to end this misery, and I wonder, I wonder, to stay and I wonder and often pray so I don't run away I run 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 away <laughs> so um, I don't at all claim to sing very well uh, nor do I play the ukulele very well but um, Whenever you play the ukulele, you just look adorable, so that's why. <laughs> um, I work a lot with young people, and so as you see, I have this little penguin here. I actually passed it around in my little group meeting today, and um, it was just really amazing to watch as it went to each person, like how their just heart just kind of opened, and they just became like a little kid. And it's so sweet to see all of you smiling. Like, just a few minutes ago, everybody was like... <laughs> Yeah, these retreats can get so like intense and so like heavy, so that's why I'm starting off. <laughs> um, this is my Dharma talk. <laughs> I'm um, not one to like really write, and um, like I was saying this morning about this, the title of this retreat being "Intimacy with Life." You get to know yourself really well when you go on retreat. And um, having been um, like a manager, I'm like a total J on the Myers-Briggs. Like I'm very linear and very organized and very planned, very scheduled. Like everything is like clockwork. But when it comes to like sitting here, I just become a big old P. And no matter how much my left brain wants to plan and like have notes and, and great stories and poems and stuff, I, I, I just can't do it, you know, it's like, and then I, I um, notice myself feeling a lot of suffering around, um, like, not being like other Dharma teachers that I, I often see, um, because how many people would sit up here in front of 100 people and not know what to do? <laughs> so, um, 
And so I was reflecting on this today, you know, just this tension that I have, and I, I kind of imagine that, like, many of you might experience that too, you know, just this uncertainty about just being here. You know, for me, a lot of it is this uncertainty about taking this seat. But people keep inviting me to come, and I keep taking my seat, and it's actually just become a practice, and one that I wish I enjoyed a lot more. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it was meant to be this way, so I'm accepting it. So... Hmm. How I approach when I offer a Dharma talk is um, I pray a lot before I come in, <laughs> and then I just I pray that something is going to come through me. And so it's um, really a, a huge practice of faith and trust. So we'll see where this goes. So this practice that we're engaging in is um, called vipassana, which means to see clearly. And as you've probably experienced on retreat thus far, um, there's a lot of stuff going on in your mind, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of narratives, a lot of um, things that we say to ourselves but never really fully pay attention to in our daily lives. But they actually inform how we live and how we experience ourselves and each other. So when when I first started coming on retreats, I would notice, like, my stories would be ones of like, there's something wrong with you, you're not enough. Um, and I think it's no mistake that I you know, started practicing and fell into the lap of Tara, because that's Tara's dharma. Um, because, you know, uh, I actually thought I would be more of a Zen Buddhist, because I have that kind of aesthetic, and you know, I like things to be really neat. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that like, the altars aren't so cluttered right now. It's like, Super happy. There's a piece of tape here, though, that's really bugging me, and I'm just going to keep it there as, as a way of just, like, being able to be with. Um, but what I've found is um, more than the actual practice itself, because I think the practice is one of um, really training our minds to, to be still, to, like, calm a little bit, you know, and to be very loving and accepting with what arises, But what I've found over the many years of practice for myself and in in, uh, witnessing yogis go through retreats is that what I believe really needs to be cultivated is actually an unconditional friendliness towards ourselves first. Because there's so much, I think, that happens where we begin to question, you know, am I doing this right? Like, um, am I good enough to, you know, am I worthy enough to, like, even be here? Like, I could be doing other things. Um, I'm just sitting here and I don't even know if it's working, you know, like all this doubt that comes up. And what I've discovered, and I did this um, three years ago when I went on my month-long retreat, is that when I started to um, recognize that I was just telling myself the same things over and over and over again, that um, they weren't very helpful. It wasn't making me feel any better about myself. And so I find when we can, like, recognize that that's happening, we can actually do something about it, you know? We're not, like, on automatic pilot where we're just, like, listening to these stories like, oh, yeah, that's, like, kind of what I do and that's, like, how I am, etc. 
And so when I discovered there was actually a choice that I could go down that conditioned road of like being and doing what I have always done that never seems to work out for me or do something differently, which is like being in the unknown. And to me, that's what a lot of like sitting up here is. It's like it's just me practicing being in the unknown and like letting go of the handlebars and going, wee. <laughs> um, so... back up a little bit and tell just a little bit of my, my background. So um, when I was a kid, like, I realized that you know, I, I, I liked other little girls having been biologically born female, and I also didn't want to be a little girl. And so I had this like, really heavy burden to carry as a young child and developed this story of there's something innately wrong with you. You're not like everybody else. And it was a time in the early 70s where like, this wasn't a thing. You know, now... They're like trans kids, like at two, three, four years old, that are saying, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, or I'm something in between. I never knew that that was even possible to say back then. And I actually believe now that the generations that are being born are actually a lot more woke than we will ever be. And so um, I had to carry this secret about myself for a really long time, and and my coping mechanism to be with that secret was to like be everything everyone else wanted me to be. And that was the expectations of my parents, the expectations of my peers, um, society. It was like, whatever you want, I'll be that. And it wasn't until I started practicing that I recognized, like, wow, that's just not working for me anymore. People often ask me, like, how did you come to the Dharma? And I came um, because of a, a horrific breakup, really bad. Most people come to the Dharma because they're suffering. You know, it's like most people don't come. It's like, oh, things are going great. Let me just sit here. <laughs> um, and what I got from you know um, that that particular breakup was that uh, the common denominator in all these failed relationships was me. And it was really like time to stop and actually take inventory of what was going on in here and that I could no longer judge and blame somebody else for my misery or my um, sense of rejection or, or whatever. And it was through this practice that, you know, I started to untangle these messages that I kept telling myself of like, there's something wrong with you, or you're not enough. And... Um, and I don't credit, like, the Dharma or the practices for everything. I mean, I've been in therapy for years. I've, like, you know, read all these self-help books. I've um, taken all kinds of human potential workshops and stuff, one of which was um, the Landmark Forum. You don't have to admit if you took it, but um, <laughs> there's actually a lot of Dharma in the Landmark Forum. You just have to get away from the culty part of it. <laughs> um, and so... There was this exercise in an advanced course where um, we were supposed to write down our life story, you know, and all the misery and things that, and stories we would tell ourselves about ourselves. And we would write that down on a sheet of paper. We had like 30 minutes. And then when we were finished, we were asked to partner with somebody. And then we were um, told, okay, now tell your life story to this person. This person was just supposed to like deeply listen to you. So, you know, I'm telling my story, and I'm, like, crying, and I'm, like, oh, my God, all these different things happen to me. Nobody accepts me. Nobody loves me, etc. And then it gets to the end, and the facilitator says, okay, now read the story to your partner again. 
upset. I read the story to my partner again. I'm still a little emotionally involved and attached with it. They made us read that thing like four times. And then after the fourth time, I was reading it to my partner again. And then all of a sudden, I hear this background music of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. It was like, net, 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 Well, that's what my story started to sound like. You know, it's like I just got tired of it, right? And so the instruction was then from that lesson was tell your story three times and then let it go. So how often do we just tell the same story to ourselves over and over and over again? It's almost as if, like, we don't even recognize that we're suffering. You know, it's, our suffering has become the baseline of our existence. But it's not. You know, there's so much more. And so um, one of my favorite teachers, Eric Kolvig, at the end of a retreat one year said, um, if you're going to take anything away from this retreat, take away these two things. Sit every day and notice when you're suffering. And the more I just notice when I'm suffering, I can, like, just intervene. You know, it's like Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, who just wields his sword and just cuts through the bullshit. And it's like, we're not doing that no more, you know? <laughs> you can, but it's not going to feel good, you know? And so it just, for me, it just got to the point where I can't keep hiding. I can't keep denying who I am. I can't keep, you know, telling myself that um, it's up to other people to decide if I belong or I'm acceptable or I'm lovable. And so through working through a lot of that, you know, just getting this strong sense of, like, that refuge of Buddha nature, you know. I was on this queer retreat that I taught three weeks ago um, with this phenomenal teacher named Gavin Harrison. And what am I about, I'm about to share about Gavin's teaching is pretty intense. And if it's too intense, have it just be a seed that you plant. If it resonates, that's great. But how Gavin described Buddha nature... And, and he's very open about this. But Gavin is a, uh, a gay man. He uh, grew up in apartheid South Africa. He um, was uh, sexually incested and abused when he was um, a kid and in high school at a boarding, boys' boarding school. And he is a 40-year survivor of HIV. So here is somebody that has had like, all this trauma, all this pain, suffering in his life. noticing as I'm sharing that, like, just feeling, you know, so much compassion for that. And so how he described Buddha nature is that piece of you, that sliver of you, even if, like, all this has happened to you, it is the part of you that has never been violated or betrayed or hurt or um, harmed at all. There's still that part of you. And so for me, it's like that cultivation of your innate goodness, your Buddha nature, the part of you that is already wise, is already compassionate, is already loving and kind, is already here. There's nothing to seek out there, no matter how many teachers, how many retreats you go on. I found for myself that the more I was able to cultivate that in here and believe that in here, the easier it got, so much easier. So um, I 
came to this country with my parents when I was like 10 months old, so we're, we're immigrants from the Philippines, and, and my parents were very much um, very strict and overprotective and um, wanted us to definitely assimilate you know, into America, which for them was like white culture. And so in a lot of ways, I just feel like all the different identities I had, I just couldn't own, you know, growing up. And I didn't come out to my parents till I was 38. And, um, and it was really interesting. And it was actually after the Landmark Forum that I came out to them. <laughs> because the Landmark Forum, they dare you to do all these things. It's like, you're not living your life unless you do these things. And I'm like, okay, okay. And so... Um, I called my parents and I said, you know, I'd like to come over for lunch and I have something really important to tell you. So I come over, they prepare this beautiful lunch and um, they say, like, uh, can we turn off Bonanza? <laughs> They're constantly watching, like, you know, these old shows. And, and they looked at me like, oh my God, this is really important. We're turning off the TV at, at lunch. And uh, so I started getting emotional. I said, you know, I've been wanting to tell you this for many years, but I didn't think that you would be able to accept it. So um, I'm telling you now that I'm gay. And I start crying, and, and my mom's like, who's always been very stoic, was like, no, you know, stop crying. You don't need to cry, you know? Like, we've been waiting 18 years for you to say something. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, 18 years? And, you know, now and I look back, it's like I, I could, you know, it was hard because, like, my parents are, like, conservative, Republican, Catholic, Fox News-watching, Bush-loving people. I could swear if we didn't look like them, we were adopted, you know. But, um, and so I just didn't feel like it would be okay. And my mom said to me, like, you know, you're our kid and we love you no matter what. And... Um, and I just had to then mourn, like, the, you know, 18 years of, of lost relationship with my parents. That was really about me, you know. It really wasn't about them. So um, that acceptance, you know, was huge. And then, I, you know, I wasn't just gay or queer. I was, you know, I identify as genderqueer, transgender, and... Um, but I knew that I didn't want to like transition fully to become a man. I, I just felt like I was like something in between, and um, and I've always just wanted to like have top surgery to like remove my breasts. And I never imagined that my parents would be okay with that. You know, I just thought, oh, I just have to like wait till they both die and then I can finally be myself. Well, my mother did pass away. My father is super healthy. And I don't know when he's going to die, so I actually decided to do it about, um, yeah, six months after my mom died. And here I am. This is law. And, um, and that's, you know, as far as I'm choosing to go at this point. But I've never felt so much more aligned with myself physically. And the other big lesson that I got was like, oh, if I just align myself physically with who I am, then my life will be perfect. Well, you know, six months later, like, I got really depressed. I'm like, oh, that wasn't it either. <laughs> um, so it, it's like, not, I really got this realization that, like, nothing external to myself was ever going to make me happy. Not a person, 
not a physical appearance, uh, not a job, not a, you know, some sort of recognition or whatever, no money, no success. And so it was like, you know, can I just be content with me, no matter what? Whether I'm depressed, whether I'm feeling really happy, whether um, I'm going through a difficult time or someone that I love is going through a difficult time, it didn't matter. Can I cultivate a sense of steadiness and, and um, equanimity to be with whatever is arising? And so, um, so I did that, you know, surgery and went through the year, went through the depression, and then I was like, oh, I'm really in a lot of chronic pain that I've been in denial of for probably over a decade. And so I had finally decided that, you know, I didn't have a good leg to stand on. <laughs> and so I decided to get, like, both these knees replaced. And everybody I would tell that I was going to get them replaced both at the same time, they were like, both? <laughs> you know? And I'm so glad I did because I probably would not do it again. <laughs> and more so because of what I put my partner through. And, and it's been an incredible journey, not only like physically for me, um, what I was able to uh, experience during this healing process is that there was so much underlying pain underneath the surgery. And... Um, it was years of compensating, years of um, ways I had to hold myself in order to keep myself balanced, that through physical therapy, through various forms of body work and energy work, that I had to work through these different layers. And it's just like what happens here. So if this is your first retreat and it just feels like, oh my God, am I, am I doing this? It's, it, it's like it's so cumulative. And it's a process that... Um, with diligence, and when I say diligence, it's not about being like type A about it. It's about committing to like what Tara was talking about last night around being in touch with like what most matters to you and what um, allows you to want to wake up. You know? And for me, it was like I just want to be fully alive. You know? And I had an interesting therapy session about, I don't know, three or four years ago where I went into my therapist's office and I said, you know, like all these meditation retreats and all these workshops I do and books that I read and like it's ultimately not about being happy, is it? And she said, well, what do you think it's about? And I said, I think it's about being fully alive. And she said, you know what, Law? Being fully alive is way better than being happy. And that totally changed the trajectory about how I saw the world and myself in this world. It wasn't about like finally like to me, like being free is about being open to whatever is, you know. And I have like all these identities, being an immigrant, transgender person of color, like everything is kind of in this society like against me, right? And, and I'm honestly like, you know what, you can annul my marriage, you can not tell me, you know, you can tell me not to go to a certain bathroom or you can like take my naturalization papers and, you know, send me back to the Philippines, but like you'll never take away my dignity, like, you'll never, like, you can't have that unless I give it to you. And to me, that is that sliver of Buddha nature that nothing, not even the government, can touch. So all this wackiness can be going on, and I'm just like, wow. It's just a matter of time, you know. And this is where I put all my faith in karma. <laughs> so, so all that's happening in your experience 
And it's not about liking it or not liking it, or if it's easy or hard. It's just what it is. And if you can just like sit back and just be like, wow, anger's moving through right now, or fear's moving through right now, or immense grief is moving through right now. To be able to hold that with yourself um, and to know that those around you are probably some people in here experiencing something very similar. To know that you're not alone like allows you to be with it more. And that, to me, is the power of Sangha. I group this afternoon, we were um, talking about, you know, like these narratives and stories that we tell ourselves. And in working with young people, I always say to them, you know, if you're going to tell yourself a story, tell yourself a good one. And I had this um, experience uh, during a meditation um, this past December. Um, I was at a forgiveness retreat um, out in California, my teacher Larry Yang. And it was the first retreat where they had five teachers of color, one Chinese-American man, and four African-American teachers. And it was open to everybody, so it wasn't like a POC retreat. It was a mainstream retreat, and it was like half people of color and half white folks. And the theme was forgiveness. And the usual practice of forgiveness is that of forgiving ourselves. The second is forgiving others for hurting us. The third is asking forgiveness of others for, them, uh, for us hurting them. And then the fourth one that I had never heard of before was, can we forgive or at least intend to forgive the first noble truth? Can we forgive or intend to forgive that in this life there is suffering? And as soon as I heard that, my mind just exploded. You know, it was like, oh my God, that is like kind of a, a key to be able to like accept you know, that so much of like what is happening is what's happening. It's not to say that we don't do anything about it, but to like be able to, for me, to open my heart to embrace all that is happening, whether it be personal or collective. And then soon after that, um, retreat, I had this experience where um, I was able to channel my mother a message. You know, I was like meditating, and all of a sudden, this voice said to me, "Like, write, write this down." And so I did. And it was clearly my mother, but my mother talking to me in the voice that I've always longed for her to talk to me in, not in the imperative: <laughs> do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. So this is what my mother told me. When we, and my mother passed away two years ago this past March. When we came over from the Philippines, we were both so scared to be so alone and far away from our families. A hidden deep resentment brewed that, uh, within us that we never wanted to go back. It was too painful, too much pride. You and your sister were all we had left of our families. We couldn't bear to have anything happen to you, so we held on so tight tried to control to make it all okay, all because we loved you so much and yet didn't know how to show you or tell you. It came out as expectation to not really see you for who you actually were, but more extensions of ourselves. I want to apologize for being so hard and harsh on you. 
I am so happy that you found two loving partners in Wendy and Rob. She's talking to both my sister and me. I'm not polygamous. (laughs) I want you to be completely and fully who you are and to be free. We saved so you can be happy to not ever worry that you are not going to be okay. We sacrificed so much of ourselves for our pure, undying love for you. We want, us to, we want you to thrive, especially because you will not be continuing our lineage in the traditional sense. Let us heal our relationships finally. Release us from all our burdens and expectations and low self-esteem. We no longer have to stuff it down or hold, it on, hold on to it anymore. You are both our beautiful children. We love you so much, and we ask for your forgiveness so that we can all be happy and free. So that came through me, whether that's my mom or or what. You know, I can't be certain, but it was good enough for me. And what I felt that healed, you know, for me was this... um, whole of like never ever feeling that I was enough for them you know they were the kind of parents who you know even if I got straight A's it was like oh well you know you can do better you know you could get A pluses for those of you who used to watch Glee you know it was like the Asian F was A minus (laughs) and so it was really um being able to like let go of that expectation um, and it just felt like it just came full circle I was mentioning earlier how conservative my parents were um, right before my mom died it was like um, the election, and I was asking her who she wanted to be president. She was like, Chris Christie. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and, um, and so I actually did this um, day-long retreat down in Austin, Texas, uh, in January. And I accepted, like, two gigs in Texas and last year. And I decided, okay, next year is just going to be the year of yes. Like, no matter what, you're just going to do things that make you feel uncomfortable, go to places that make you feel uncomfortable, etc. So I did this day long, and it was um, at this place called the Dharma Ranch right outside of Austin. Uh, a couple of yogis, Kelly Cotner and Suzanne Fitzsimon, who come to this retreat, um, had this beautiful little retreat center down there. And did this day long, and... Um, Kelly said to me before the, the day long that um, just want you to know there might be some Trump supporters coming. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Okay, cool. And um, so I met one of them, this, this beautiful woman, Mary, who's probably like 85 or something. And uh, she participated really fully on the retreat. You know, she didn't wince when I asked her to, in, you know, ask the um, yogis to introduce themselves and share their pronouns. And she went along right with it, etc. And at the end of the retreat, she came up to me and she said, you know what, La, I am so, like, happy I came. You know, I've learned a whole lot, and I'm just really grateful. And my friend Kelly, who grew up in Texas, said to me, you know, La, in Texas, 
you can disagree, but Texans will always treat you like a human being, no matter what. And that's exactly how I felt. And I got this email from Mary the following day, basically thanking me again. And she said, um, you know, I read your website. <laughs> if you go to my website, it's, it's just like what I'm doing now. It's very personal. And, um, and she read, and she's like, it's so wonderful to like, really understand like, you and your life. And I'm so glad that you asked us to share our pronouns, because now I know why. And so, you know, keep sharing yourself and making this world a better place. Love, Mary. So you just don't know, you know, who, what people carry, what, you know, people believe. But I think that ultimately, bottom line, we can find this sort of common ground or shared um, experience in one way or another. Um, We can come together. You're probably wondering what this little penguin is doing up here. Um, so I got it the other day. Uh, got one for a friend of mine who was, um, had a reoccurrence with cancer recently and, and sent her one, and I was like, I want one too. <laughs> and so I got it. And uh, usually um, when I used to facilitate teen sanghas, you know, we would pass a little hedgehog around and um, it was something like you know when you can hold something like this it just like I mean who needs to do a loving kindness talk when you can just hold this up you know it's just like it's like you know the Buddha did the Dharma talk with the flower he just held up the flower it's like <laughs> right it's got the room most of the room laughing it's just a stuffed animal but all that we project on this, right? So I'm just going to leave Parami is is their name. Parami, the baby perfection penguin. (laughs) Parami means perfection or ultimate. So I'll leave Parami up here on my seat, and if you need a hug, you can grab one. Keeps noble silence really well. (laughs) All your secrets are safe with Parami. You know, there's always this talk in spirituality about unconditional love. And um, I never was really like a pet person. And so um, it wasn't until my parents um, had us take care of their dog, Casey, when my mom was dying that we, my partner and I started to um, appreciate the unconditional love of a pet. Janet wanted me to bring up these, my two pups, Annabelle and McGregor, who, um, you know, just like Parami, they don't, really make any sound they're just like walking around the house and and I said to my partner the other day it's like isn't it amazing we constantly talk to these beings and they just look at you (laughs) and you repeat yourself over and over again it's like are you okay did you sleep well last night you know that um and so it's just like one reason like wow it's so easy right to to project that onto another um like especially to a pet or an animal even a stuffed animal. But what if we can like turn that around and, and, and bring that inside for ourselves? So as we practice, you know, we notice our minds are like going 100 miles an hour, you know, just to come back and just be, wow, 
going pretty fast today. No big deal. Or um, someone in uh, my group this afternoon was asking me, like, how do I um, come back to myself and be tender towards myself? And, you know, I'm a very, like, physical person, so I often will put my hand over my heart and just say, like, okay, buddy, it's like, it's a little bit of a rough ride right now. It's okay. No problem. So, you know, the sense of, like, befriending ourselves as we practice has been a really key um, way that I've been able to just be with experience. And to be quite honest, it's like a lot of times when I sit, there's not a whole lot happening. A lot of times when I'm walking around the world, there's a lot happening. <laughs> so I feel in so many ways, um, you know, my teacher Larry Yang often says there are like 84,000 gateways to awaken, you know, and of course that is like a... Um, I always wanted to see the list of the 84,000 ways, but, you know, it's, it's more that, um, you know, we teach you just, you know, two handfuls or more here. Um, so it's like find the Dharma in everything, you know, every encounter that you have with yourself, other people, ideas, you know, politics, concepts, etc. cetera. Uh, my teacher, Kate Reed, says, like, find the Dharma in everything. It's all over. And how do you bring presence and compassion and love to, to each situation? I had this uh, right before coming on retreat. My partner was struggling with something. And, um, you know, I came from a family that didn't really communicate very well. So, uh, you know, she's very expressive about what's going on for her. And, um, and when, you know, she's saying these things, you know, and it's really hard, I think, sometimes to be married to someone who's like a Dharma teacher or a mindfulness teacher because then it's like you kind of want to be like, well, if you only practiced or if you only, you know, whatever, you don't do that. Don't do that in your relationship. Um, but we got to the point where she said, I just need you to listen to me. Like, you don't need to fix it or do anything. And so I remembered that this time and, you know, she would express what was going on for her, and I just said, oh, I'm really sorry, sweetie. You know, that sounds, like, really hard. Though the, the other part of me was like, but if you only, da-da-da-da, this, that, the other. And, um, and so, you know, just listened to her for about an hour, and then about an hour later she came back, and she said, well, if you were me, what would you do? And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> and I did it, you know, like, did it in a way where it was like, not telling her what to do, but, you know, just kind of this invitation to, to work with it in a certain way. Um, what she was going through is she was being triggered by um, a certain experience that brought her back to her childhood, and, um, and she was just kind of reliving a lot of that and projecting that into the future. And so, to me, the, the beauty of this practice is, is being able to um, skillfully discern, you know, like what's what. You know, Tara often talks about the teaching around, like, you know, um, real but not true. So how it can feel so real in the moment, but it's actually not not true. My partner has this great um, term called pre-suffering. So it's kind of like, you know, when you get yourself all worked up about something and hasn't even happened yet, and so you're practicing, like, what it's going to be like when you actually... And you don't even know if you're going to suffer, but that that sense of pre-suffering.
One more thing I want to share. Um, you know, we live in a time right now where there's so much that it's almost, I, I feel for myself that I, I'm just being bombarded and um, it's like feeling almost traumatized every day. And if I, you know, respond or react to every single thing, I just notice that I just burn myself out. So I just want to offer this um, great blog post by a woman named Rainia Name, and it's called, I'm slowly learning that I don't have to react to everything that bothers me. I'm slowly learning that the energy it takes to react to every bad thing that happens to you, drains you, and stops you from seeing the other good things in life. I'm slowly learning that I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea, and I won't be able to get everyone to treat me the way I want to be treated, and that's okay. I'm slowly learning that trying so hard to win anyone is just a waste of time and energy, and it fills you with nothing but emptiness. I'm slowly learning that not reacting doesn't mean I'm okay with things. It just means I'm choosing to rise above it. I'm choosing to take the lesson it has served and learn from it. I'm choosing to be the bigger person. I'm choosing my peace of mind because that's what I truly need. I don't need more drama. I don't need people making me feel like I'm not good enough. I don't need fights and arguments and fake connections. I'm slowly learning that sometimes not saying anything at all says everything. I'm slowly learning that reacting to things that upset you gives someone else power over your emotions. You can't control what others do, but you can control how you respond, how you handle it, how you perceive it, and how much of it you want to take personally. I'm slowly learning that most of the time these situations say nothing about you and a lot about the other person. I'm slowly learning that maybe all these disappointments are just there to teach us how to love ourselves because that will be the armor and the shield we need against the people who are trying to bring us down. The shield and armor will save us when people try to take, shake our confidence or when they try to make us feel like we're worthless. I'm slowly learning that even if I react, it won't change anything. It won't make people suddenly love and respect me. It won't magically change their minds. Sometimes it's better to just let things be. Let people go. Don't fight for closure. Don't ask for explanations. Don't chase answers. Don't expect people to understand where you're coming from. I'm slowly learning that life is better lived when you don't center it on what's happening around you and center it on what's happening inside you instead. Work on yourself and your inner peace, and you'll come to realize that not reacting to every little thing that bothers you is the first ingredient to living a happy and healthy life. You know, I, I started um, telling friends and family that I go by the pronouns they, there, and them. And... Um, it's been really an interesting ride in having people integrate that into their lexicon. And I remember when um, folks would misgender me for, uh, you know, and especially friends that I've told over and over and over again, um, you know, why can't you get this? I don't care if it's not grammatically correct, whatever. Um, I was just constantly being pissed off and, and angry and disappointed. And so it's like, I've told you, and, and you know, if it takes a while to get that in going, that's, 
That's okay. What I've learned um, is that with these identities that I carry, um, I used to think that they were a burden, but I actually feel they're a huge blessing. Because I feel like it um, gives me the opportunity to have the most badass practice of patience, compassion, acceptance, tolerance. And the more that I have been able to um, cultivate those qualities, the happier I am. I've run out of juice. I've got the 45 minutes, boss, and um, I'm happy to take any questions or, or anything. But thank you for your kind attention. Oh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no questions. Teaching was very clear. Awesome. <laughs> Gary's got a mic. I'm very touched at the personal, like how personal you're making this. And I just suppose it's almost like it's, it's universal in front of a, you're making it universal as well, in a group of 100. And I would say that I relate in terms of that I was an unwanted child at birth. And I'm still working with that. And... With this whole thing about forgiveness, I didn't hear you mention, I don't think you mentioned grief. But in my own process is that um, I really do like how you said about the, the foundation thing about say the story three times and forget. I can really relate to that. Is that it seems that the neurobiologists say, like, every time you repeat that story, that you make that neural pathway stronger. And so if you can just be with it, and that's what I would call the Buddhist way is about, for me, is about liberation. And I would say thank you for your um, walk down a path of liberation. And that is that you can't change, can't change the things of the past. But what I can do, and what I hear you doing, is saying, I can change how I relate to it. And so I often think of it, I, what I need to do is spray myself with Teflon. Mm -hmm. And so shit still happens, but it doesn't stick, and just shake and let it off. So, so I just wonder uh, if you have any reflections about, about uh, a, a grief. In, in, in that workshop that you did in, in, in California where they say there was different forms of uh, forgiveness. And I would say that in my own grieving is that um, I, I, I struggle to... Um, it's, it's, I think I heard from Jack Cornfield kind of fits into this, to learn to give up all hope. It's very important, very productive to learn to give up all hope of a better past... Well, to me, that's just realistic. That's just being realistic. And so, um, um, do you see as grieving as part of the forgiveness process? Definitely. Definitely. You know, um, 
my mom got diagnosed with a brain tumor um, is actually a blessing because, you know, when I learned that she probably had four to six months to live, that, you know, it gave me time. And um, so in a lot of ways, I was able to say things and resolve things with her and not necessarily with her being conscious. Like a lot of this I processed when she was sleeping because um, she just couldn't, you know, process in that way. But a lot of it was, like, for me to, like, begin to let go and heal, you know, what um, I needed to with her. And so, actually, when she died, I felt free, and I felt she was free. And so it felt clear. And I miss her dearly, and at the same time, after this, you know, message came through me, it's like she's still here. She's still here. She's all over. She's just not, like, here, like this. But she's still with me. I still talk to her. It's just, it's just like um, relating on a different rain, realm. So, um, so it's interesting when people, you know, and we all grieve differently, you know, and I think for me the grieving process with my mom was actually a co- combination of just sweetness and relief and that I, you know, and I know she's in a better place. She was a very devout Catholic and, you know, she basically, you know, lived her life so to be in heaven with God. That was what she wanted the most. So I'm happy for her. Thank you for your sharing, both of you. It must be a nest here because I, um, I was born out of wedlock in 1957 in Germany, which was, you know, not an easy place to be in a Catholic family. Um, and I, so I thank you very much. The one question I have is, um, me being a post-war German, I remember Eli Wiesel saying, um, the good Germans may not be guilty but responsible. And so when you mentioned this last poem of not reacting and you talked about the Teflon, something in me kind of um, had a question because I feel we... I guess there's a difference between being reactive and being engaged and active. And I'm constantly trying to find that place because when I think of post, uh, actually pre-war Germany, uh, my grandfather was um, taught philosophy and he got into it with the Nazis and stood up and talked to his students. But most people were quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, most people, what is that, Kate Tatsit consented, who's quiet consents and so I'm I'm struggling with that and I was wondering if you could give me some words on that sure thank you um, yes I should have prefaced before reading this that um, it's not like this invitation to just be lackadaisical or just be like okay whatever you know it's really about um, how we titrate our engagement. 
because sometimes if it's like too much and we're always on the front lines, uh, we're going to burn ourselves out. We're no good to anyone, especially ourselves and our families. Because sometimes it is too much, and we have to like pick and choose. And, and that, to me, is what this practice really helps with, is being able to discern, do I have the capacity right now to engage and be a part of something, or do I actually need to step back? You know? And so it's, it's like, for me, what I've begun to get you know, with all that's happening right now is that there are so many more people engaged in big ways that if I decide to step back, there's going to be a lot more, there's a lot of people, you know, working. It's like, and, and um, in the past, I used to think, like, well, if I'm not engaging, I'm not contributing, you know. Um, and a lot of times, especially right now, for me, it's like, if I'm not engaging, but I'm taking care of myself so I can engage later, then that, to me, is skillful. When you received the message from your um, mom and you said that that really gave you a lot of comfort and closure, I mean, how long a process was that for you to help heal? Was it instantaneous or did it take another whole journey? Um, to accept that forgiveness um, from your mom. And one of the other things, you know, when you talk um, in general about faith uh, or fate and some of it, that story probably resonates so much with so many of us. It's almost like your mom told it to you and you're the vehicle to tell it to us from our parents mm. and I want to thank you for that yeah um, it was pretty instantaneous I think it's because I was um, I was pretty primed and ready for it you know, because of all the work that I've done and especially like coming off of a forgiveness retreat <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you. You the last question. La, yes. I just want to say that I was incredibly touched and inspired um, by, by how you were able to create, even here, the telling of your story, even when you started off with being uncertain and where things seemed a little bit amorphous. Um, and I really, uh, so much of what you said resonates for me. Um, because my story is not mainstream whatsoever. I had parents who were very similar to yours. Um, and so I just wanted to say that that hearing your story and it being so clear and so beautiful and, and just so coming from such a true place of where it just seems so wonderful um, and, and it beginning with it being amorphous um, 
that is inspiring for me to tell my own story. So thank you. Thank you. And there's, I think it's a Zen proverb that says, um, leap and the net will appear. <laughs> so that is my invitation to your practice. Just leap, have faith, trust in yourself, and the net will appear. Let's sit for a moment. spirit of forgiveness, if there is anything that I have said in this Dharma talk that may have consciously or unconsciously harmed you, I humbly ask for your forgiveness. And may our merit, the merit of our time together be of benefit to ourselves, each other, family, friends, and loved ones, communities, and all beings everywhere. May all beings accept and love themselves just as they are. May all beings be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May we and all beings awaken and be free. Thank you again for your kind and generous attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.